It's great to be with you this morning. Um, I bring you greetings from Church of the Resurrection, Washington, D.C., from Matthew Mason and uh, from Aaron Damiani, who's been with you before, who's going on now to plant a church in Chicago, um, from our Bishop Steve and from the other friends in, in our movement of Anglican churches. Greetings in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is great to be with you. Such a joy and privilege. Um, I want to bring you also congratulations and commendations as uh, you have done well. You have borne fruit by being faithful, and this is a, a wonderful sight to behold. This church has grown and flourished um, through your hard work and through the grace of the Lord uh, at work in you. It's wonderful to be with you, and congratulations on, on all the work that you've been able to do together. Um, we're going to talk some today about God's law and the relationship of God's law to our lives as Christians. Uh, there's been a lot of confusion about this, especially in the church, in the contemporary church these days. People don't know what to do with God's law, and uh, because they don't know what to do with it, they oftentimes either end up in uh, outrageous legalism or, uh, more frequently these days, reacting against legalism of the past and, and going into a time of total antinomianism or total license. And so I'd like to look with you back at Exodus chapter 19, these verses that we read for the Old Testament lesson, Exodus 19, 4 through 6. So if you'd open your Bibles there, uh, we're going to look at uh, three points. First of all, belonging and believing, then behaving, and then becoming. And as we look at each of these points, we're also going to talk together about some, uh, some common misconceptions about God's law. So, belonging and believing, then be, um, behaving, and then becoming. Before we do that, let's pray. We give thanks to you, Lord, for your word. And we're so thankful to be able to be together and study your word together now. And we ask, Lord, that you would be in our midst and that you, by your spirit, would guide us in the study of your word. Help us to hear from you now. Lord, there are many things on our hearts, many issues and concerns that weigh upon us, whether work or school or family. Um, many of us are weary. Many of us are lonely or um, in some kind of time of need. We ask that you would help us set aside all of these things and sit at your feet now and learn from you. Open your word to us and we will follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Exodus 19, 4 through 6 is where I'd like to begin. And I'd like for you to consider this. Which came first, the Ten Commandments or the Exodus? Which came first, the Ten Commandments or the Exodus? Chapter 19, verse 4 says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This verse, God is reminding the Israelites of what he had done about three months prior in swooping down like an eagle and rescuing them, uh, res rescuing his young from uh, the clutches of the serpent. And he swooped down to rescue them when they were enslaved and helpless in Egypt. And 
uh, rescued them from Pharaoh's oppressive, unjust regime. That was three months ago. Now what? Verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. See how it begins? Now, therefore. In other words, not as a condition, but as a result of the salvation that God had just worked. Now God is giving them this code of conduct, saying, obey my voice and keep my covenant. You see that? So which came first, the exodus or the law? For some very perverse reason, we have a super hard time with this. We can read it historically. We can see Exodus, then law. Even so, we reverse them in our minds. We reverse them logically. Even though the history is one way, we reverse them and read them the opposite way. Looking at the verses again, let me tell you how I think most of us hear this. At least I hear it. I I hear it this way. If you will indeed obey my voice, and if you will keep my covenant, then I will rescue you from slavery. Then I will bear you out on eagle's wings and bring you to myself. Obey the law, and then you'll get out of jail. Sinai first, law first, then Exodus. You with me? I don't know why it is. This isn't what the Bible says, but this is the way we so often hear it. And I, I, I want to guess that something that's behind this for us is that we have a very hard time believing in a God who takes initiative. Um, maybe you know from classical philosophy this idea of a prime mover. Maybe you've studied this before. The idea that God was the one who took the initiative in creation, right? That uh, he's the cause of our existence. Um, before the origin of the universe, there was God and there was nothing else. Nothing before God. He has always been. And he's the one that brought the universe into being. And I suspect that most of us here would agree with this and we're familiar with something like this, whether you know that's called the, the idea of the prime mover or not. Uh, most of us would agree God took the initiative in creation. Do you believe that God took the initiative in your life to save you from sin? That's where it becomes more difficult for us. Easy to think about long ago, God taking the initiative in making the universe. Much harder to think about God taking the initiative with us. Um, hear this verse from, from St. Paul in Second Corinthians. Listen to what he says. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness in creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, as it was in creation, so it became in mankind after the fall. In creation, remember, the the earth was formless and void. There was chaos. And the Lord hovered over the waters, and he began to work this wonderful uh, work of creation. So he finds our hearts. Our hearts are formless and void because of sin. God hovering over us begins to work his glorious light in us to bring us to salvation in Christ. Do you really believe this? 
Or do you think that God sees your sin and brokenness and despair and says, clean up your act and then I'll come and be with you? I think this is the first and most common misperception that I want to talk about today. Very common misconception that is the first step into the church is behavior. The first step into the church is behavior. Get your life straightened out, and then when you're good enough, then you can belong to the church. And even if we don't believe this, most everybody on the outside believes it about us. The church is often thought to be the last place where you're going to receive a welcome if you're not squeaky clean, right? Let me speak to the people here who aren't yet Christians. And let me say to you, you are most welcome here. You are most welcome. And if your life isn't perfectly cleaned up, then you're in very good company because neither is the rest of us. Uh, we're, we're all um, in process with the Lord. And God isn't watching and waiting and hovering to see if you're going to get your life straightened out. Because that's not who he is. He takes the initiative with us. He already took the initiative with us. Let me say it that way. He gave his son, Jesus, to ransom us from sin and despair. And all you have to do is to put your faith in him. He already stepped out. He already uh, took the first step with us. And all we have to do is respond and receive the gift of life in Jesus Christ. Exodus, then law. Salvation from slavery, then the Ten Commandments at Sinai. Not the other way around. And it's precisely the same in the Christian life. Belonging and believing comes before behaving. You follow? Belonging and believing comes before behaving. In the Exodus and at the cross, God took the initiative. And faith is our response. Belonging and believing, then behaving. Um, A couple decades ago, efforts to address chronic homelessness in the cities in North America uh, led to a new program that's called Housing First. And before Housing First, a homeless person had to clean up his act before he he was permitted into most uh, homeless shelters. A homeless person had to demonstrate, um, you know, sobriety, um, uh, uh, clean mental health, find a job, and so on. Um, But then Housing First came along, and Housing First said, Housing First. (laughs) Then We'll work with, with these people to help them find a job, get mental health counseling, uh, and so on and so forth. And you know what? This program has worked almost twice as better as the previous program. Twice as successful as before. Why is this? Because belonging precedes behaving. Why do you think it works? Because it's imitating God's way with us. It's imitating the God of grace. Grace makes the first step. Belonging and believing precedes behaving. By the way, I'm not really from the city. I'm from the South. And um, every time I talk about behaving, it makes me laugh. I can remember my country mom growing up in Florida always saying, behave. Uh, Anybody have have a a country mom like that? You didn't hear that? Um, 
I just I hear that in my head every time I talk about it. It makes me laugh. I want to talk about behaving now. That's the next, the next point. Because, to be clear, after the Exodus, God did ask for a behavior. So look again at chapter 19, verse 5, right? Verse 4 talks about the rescue from slavery in the Exodus. Verse 5 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. It's not as if belonging and believing are essential and then behavior is optional. These two things go together. The exodus and the law go together. Salvation and obedience go together. And this isn't deceptive or unfair on God's part. It's exactly what anybody would expect. Once you belong to a particular community, that community has rules of behavior that are normal and expected. Uh, Rules are necessary for the long-term health and viability of any community. This isn't a bait-and-switch on God's part. Any community expects its members to, to follow a set of guidelines and rules. If you've ever had a roommate who leaves the fridge open and the windows open and the door unlocked and the door open and the heat on or the air conditioning on and uh, doesn't wash his dishes but in fact throws the dishes away rather than washing the dishes and uh, steals your clothes and steals your bike and steals your girlfriend. Anybody had, had a, I've had, we've all had this roommate. In fact, it's probably the same guy. We've kind of, right? If you've lived with this person, you know the need for community rules. If you don't have some community rules that are agreed upon, the community is going to break down. Community rules are necessary for the long-term health and viability of the community, right? In Rwanda, where Elise and I just were a couple of weeks ago, um, there are community rules because in 1994 there was a horrific genocide. Almost a million people lost their lives. And as a result, in Rwanda, a number of rules have been established in order to keep genocide from happening again. Um, There are communities now all across Rwanda where Hutus and Tutsis, these ethnic enemies, are now living together, in fact, living in the same homes. Some of them have married one another. Um, And they, they are living in community together. And one of the essential rules that they have for the survival of their community, the survival of their nation, is that no one talks about ethnicity. You can't identify yourself in Rwanda. It is against the law to identify yourself as a Tutsi or a Hutu. You have to identify yourself as Rwandese. Why is that? Because it's essential. I mean, it's a no-brainer. It's stupid to allow ethnic enemies to continue to identify themselves in this way. You have to establish a rule like this so that the country will survive, right? Doesn't that make sense? Housing first. The homeless program I just mentioned. Its long-term success depends upon, once people come into the homeless shelter, that they would then abide by the rules of the shelter, right? Then they have to work on sobriety. Then they have to attend mental health counseling. Then they have to work on their resume and and, uh, work on finding a job, right? And if you don't abide by the rules in the homeless shelter, what happens? You get the boot. You make room for somebody else who's going to keep the rules so that the, so that the long-term success and viability of the community is ensured. Is that unfair? Is that unjust? Is that a bait and switch? Not at all. That's just the nature of communities. Any community requires rules and rule-keeping. 
laws and law enforcement for the sake of the long-term health and viability of the community. Are you with me? Just as community rules for roommates or for ethnic enemies in Rwanda or for housing first are necessary for those communities, just as they make good sense in those places, so also in the community of God's people, he gives us laws for the long-term health and viability of our community as the people of God. In Israel, as the people came out of slavery, they had lived, remember, in Egypt for some 400 years, first as guests, but then under increasing opposition, and finally they became slaves, right? And the religion that they saw practiced in Egypt was one of behave, then belong. Uh, Live a life that is is, uh, consumed with sacrifice worship to a pantheon of different Egyptian gods. And if your life measures up at the end, then maybe those gods will welcome you into the afterlife. Behave, 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 and then belong. Now, the Israelites had no Bible at this time. They're undoubtedly influenced by the Egyptians, by everything they've seen in Egyptian uh, religion and practices. And when the Lord delivered the Israelites from the dark shadows of Egypt, they needed a new rule of life to define their new community. When they marched out from Egypt into the desert, they needed a rule of life to shape how they would relate to one another. And that's exactly what the Lord does starting in Exodus chapter 20, the gift of the Ten Commandments. The Lord is giving them reasonable, keepable rules for how to to configure their society together. So these Ten Commandments that we see starting in chapter 20 are the, um, the, the, the primary source for all of the other laws that follow in the Old Testament. And not one of them is outlandish. Not one of them is particularly burdensome. They all make sense in some way, uh, just as rules for, for Rwanda or for Housing First make sense. Let me, let me walk you through some of the commandments. Let's just do the first four, the ones that are uh, primarily vertical. Let's just look at those and think about those for a minute. Think about the Israelites first receiving these Ten Commandments. Look at the first commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me, including the sun, the moon, the stars, the Nile, crocodiles, cows, war, fertility, lions, right? All the things that Egyptians worshipped. Doesn't that make sense? You shall have no other gods before me. God made all of these things. We shouldn't worship all of those things. And by the way, God made mankind to rule all of these things, right? In creation. Uh, You shouldn't be worshiping these things. You should be worshiping the creator who made these things. And by the way, gave you the job of stewarding them. Commandment number two, verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, an idol. Why? Because you yourselves were made in my image. And until the perfect, sinless Son of God comes, you are the best picture of me that is on this earth. Don't you dare go worshiping other things and saying that those are better pictures of me because you are the image of God. Doesn't that make sense? 
Commandment number three, verse seven, you shall not abuse the name of the Lord your God. Why? Because unlike the silly Egyptian gods who can be manipulated by rabbit's feet and little amulets and, and magic words and potions, God is not manipulated by any of that junk. God is in charge, in fact. And so we pray to him and we trust him because he's in charge. Don't abuse God's name. Don't think you can control him by saying, in Jesus' name, amen, and making, making some powerful incantation that makes him do something. That's silly. Fourth commandment, verse 8. Remember to keep the Sabbath day holy. Why? Because you aren't slaves anymore, or are you? Remember when you used to work 24-7? Now you don't have to. You can put away the smartphone. You can take the day off on the weekends. Um, And when you do this, you honor me because it's an act of faith to stop working and to trust me that I'm, in fact, going to provide for you. When you don't do this, you're saying that you really don't believe in me. It's, It's practical atheism. So on, you know, we go through the Ten Commandments, and we can see that every one of them is reasonable. Every one of them makes sense in the context. Every one of them is necessary, in fact, for creating a new community and configuring that community according to God being in the middle of it, God being the king, God being the leader. Um, Jesus described those first four as more vertical. The the next six are horizontal. And the, the next six, you know, honor your father and mother, and then prohibitions against adultery and murder and theft and false witness covetousness uh, are, are all reasonable rules for creating a godly community, a sustainable community, a viable community long term. So hopefully this clears up a second misconception about God's law, which is that God's law is a curse. I think a lot of us tend to believe this, that God's law is somehow a curse rather than a blessing. I think this comes from a misreading of Paul's letter to the Galatians, where Paul talks about the curse of the law. And I want you to notice that when Paul talks about the curse of the law, he doesn't say that the law is a curse. He's saying the curse of the law because he's writing to the Galatians who had switched things around and had put behaving before belonging. And he says when you do that, you experience the curse of the law. When they preferred their own self-righteousness over the righteousness of Christ, they came under a curse. But at Sinai, when God gave his people his law, he gave it to them as a blessing, not as a curse. He gave it to them, in fact, as a wedding present. It was the very best thing that he could possibly give them so that they might live together in harmony with one another and with him and that their community might be viable. In fact, as he gives it to them, he says, you're going to be my treasured possession. You've gone from slaves. Three months later, you're my treasured possession. It's a Cinderella story of God's people. It's an incredible story of what he's doing in their midst to take them from the bottom all the way to the top. How's he going to do that? By giving them these rules to live together as a holy people. It's not a curse. It's a blessing. So, just to sum up this point, to be clear... Belonging and believing precede behaving, right? God's work of salvation begins this, and, and behavior follows. But these two things go together, and you can't separate them out, okay? Um, the gift of the law was every bit as much grace 
as God's act of salvation in, in uh, pulling his people out of slavery. God loves us. He gave us his law because he doesn't want us to be suffering forever as a broken people being dashed against the broken uh, cliffs of sin. God's gift of the law is a blessing and not a curse. What does this mean for the church of the incarnation? Drums of a revival praise center here in Harrisonburg. What does this mean for you? Uh, Hopefully this affirms what you already are, which is that you're a place of belonging first, and then a people who adhere, who behave according to God's law. But belonging first, right? Uh, Just as we saw with the Housing First program, the city doesn't take a homeless person off the street, welcome them in, and then say, do whatever makes you feel good, right? Because that is not a blessing. That's a curse. There's the initial grace of a place to live and the ongoing grace of community rules that bring transformation in that person's life. In the same way, the Church of the Incarnation is not a so-called welcoming and affirming church, is it? Uh, What Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace, Uh, where you welcome your newcomers in and you say, hey, God wants you to be happy, so do whatever you please. Because that's not grace. Maybe it's cheap grace, but it's not a blessing. It's a curse. You graciously welcome in outsiders, and then you graciously and lovingly model for them a Christian life that is transformative, right? You practice God's law voluntarily. This is very important. Voluntarily, you choose to do it as a community. And as you practice God's law voluntarily, out of thankfulness, giving thanks for what God has done for you and what you have done for one another, that love makes this community so attractive that everyone wants to be a part of it. The love that you show and the holiness that you exhibit is transformational. This isn't a curse. This is a blessing. Your shared life together isn't all of your mission, but it is a huge part of your mission to this city. The way that you love one another, right? They will know we are Christians by our... Yeah. The way that you love one another is transformative when you live according to God's law. Because living in this way creates a context in which Christianity, which seems so absurd to the outside world, suddenly becomes plausible. And plausibility is a huge part of evangelism. Why do people come to faith? Not because you have all the right answers, but because when they come into your community, they see a way of life that makes such good sense and and, and is so life-giving, right? To a watching world, Sabbath-keeping seems absolutely absurd. Putting, putting away work in the evenings, putting away work uh, over the weekend, and resting and playing seems so absurd to a watching world that is a go, 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 go world. But people come into this community, they see you keeping the Sabbath, they see you resting and trusting in the Lord, and they see the joy in your lives, and they see the peace, and it becomes plausible. Christianity becomes plausible to them because of what they see in your lives. Take sexuality. The world is looking at our sexual norms and scoffing at us 
It's a joke, right? But how is sexuality working for them on the outside? It's not working very well. Breakup after breakup after breakup, sadness, loneliness. And people come into this community, they see this crazy way that you're being, uh, you're practicing chastity, right? So absurd, right? And yet they see love, they see uh, children growing up being nurtured, they see families sticking together, and there's something wholesome and winsome and plausible about it. And that's not all of your mission, that's not all that you do for evangelism, but that is a huge huge witness in and of itself for a watching world. So, first belonging and believing, then behaving, then becoming. And I've already been hinting at this, this third point, becoming, finally becoming. And, and let me clear up one last misconception, and that is that behavior is what God really wants from us. That behavior is the the big end, the big goal that he's looking for. It's not. Um, Not any more than you, for those of you who are parents, uh, that behavior is what you really, really want from your kids. At least for Elise and me, what we want when we ask our children to behave is we want to set a trajectory with them that they're going to turn out all right, you know, that they're going to uh, turn out okay and make something of themselves uh, when they grow up, right? Isn't that the expectation that you have with your children um, with behavior? Behavior isn't the end. Behavior is the means to the end of becoming. And God is not hovering over you watching to see if you're going to behave because that's his, uh, his major goal for your life. Look at verse 6 in chapter 19, right? Verse 4, remember I saved you in the Exodus. Verse 5, now behave yourselves. Keep the, keep the laws that I give you. Verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is God's objective. This is his end game. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what he wants not behavior as, as an end, to himself, end unto itself, but as a means of becoming God's ambassadors to the world. Salvation first, then faithfulness, then fruitfulness. Okay? Or belong and believe, behave, become. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter picks this up, right? This whole idea. Uh, Peter's Jewish. He, he knows these passages uh, he's got to memorize, and he picks this up, preaching to the early Christians. First Peter chapter two, verse nine: You are a chosen race. Who the, the, these people who've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ? Now you are the chosen race. You are the royal priesthood. You are the holy nation. You are a people for Christ's own possession. Why is that? Look at the end of chapter two, verse nine. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the goal. In other words, belonging as you do to the Lord and behaving according to God's law, you become priests for the whole world, proclaiming the gospel to all nations so that they might come into God's light. 
belonging as you do to the Lord, behaving according to God's law, you become priests for the whole world, ambassadors to the nations, so that all nations might know and come under King Jesus. So Peter goes on to say, Therefore, keep your conduct pure. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among outsiders honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may nevertheless see your good deeds and yet glorify God when Christ returns. <clears throat> like, Peter, like Jesus says in the salt and light gospel passage we read. <clears throat> Peter knew the Old Testament. He knew the story. He knew that God rescued his ancestors out of Egypt at the Exodus. He gave them his law so they might become a kingdom of priests, but they didn't. He knew that they fell away. They fell into sin. They didn't become what God had called them to be. And so what did God do? He sent his son into the world to rescue them and us from sin and to reboot this whole plan so that we might become a kingdom of priests, so that all nations might come under King Jesus. Good behavior isn't an end unto itself. Jesus says we're salt and light for the world. We behave so that we might be the people God called us to be. We're called to be God's priests so that the nations might belong and believe. Now, are you willing to follow God's law for the sake of such a high office? Are you willing to conform to the rules of the community so that you might be a kingdom of priests, so that you might be a part of the Cinderella story, so that you might be God's ambassadors? Are you worried about not making it? You should be. But we have a, we have a huge difference, and the difference is the Holy Spirit. Jesus sends out his disciples, says, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, right? And here's the good news. Here's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going with you. Wherever you go, wherever you are, I will be with you and empower you to do this work. You're not alone. So the New Testament is filled with different descriptions of how to live according to God's law, uh, passages like the fruit of the Spirit and so on, uh, passages like Colossians 3, where you take off the old man and put on the new, put on Christ. Why is that? So that we might become faithful ambassadors, so that we might bear good fruit rather than bad fruit. Did you hear about the, all the $100 bills that were printed that turned out to be, um, uh, they had too many errors, so they have to take them and destroy them now? Did you hear about this? They um, printed 30 million new $100 bills, um, and it's going to cost our government $50 million to destroy them because of the mistakes. Uh, because the, the process was a faulty process, and so the printing press made bad fruit. Um, in our church, we're, we're gearing up back at Church of the Resurrection to plant another church. But over the past several years, we've been working on internals at Resurrection, trying to, to clean up our own DNA before we plant another congregation. Why? Because we, we want to have good fruit. We want to conform more and more to the law of God. We want to have more and more of a, of a, a holy uh, community internally so that as we 
start more churches in the city, that those churches would, would bear good fruit. See, it makes sense. The goal is not behavior. The goal is to become this kingdom of priests for all nations. And here in Harrisonburg, it's the same whether you're talking about planting a new congregation or raising godly children or evangelism at work or in the schools or in the restaurants or or whatever. Faithfulness is a prerequisite to fruitfulness. Fruitfulness is the end game. It's been great to be with you this morning. It's such a joy to be back here with you. Thank you so much for your, your hospitality. Let me sum up what I was saying. Just quick review. If you're not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're here today, let me issue you again a very warm welcome and say on behalf of this church, I know the leaders and I can speak on their behalf, that you are most welcome here, even though you aren't quite yet perfect. And let me say to you who follow the Lord Jesus, give thanks to him for the gift of his law. It is not a curse. It's a blessing. Think how chaotic our lives would be without it. And then let me encourage you to come to the Lord's table and commune with him. He has promised to be with you and to go with you wherever he sends you on mission. Come and commune with him so that you might become the ambassador the city has called you to be. Let's pray.